Next month, two things are going to happen. First, early on in the month, millions and millions of people across our country are going to go and choose who they think is the best person to be on their city councils, for their mayors, for their state reps, in some cases for governors, uh, all of the House of Representatives in Congress, and a third of the Senate. There were Most of us are, are going to make that choice. We're going to go in there and we're going to uh, throw our ballot for whomever we think is the best person for all of those jobs. And then later on that day, or maybe the next day, there are going to be people who are extremely happy, and there are going to be people who are extremely sad. There's going to be some folks who are just downright angry, who get mad about the outcomes. And there's going to be heartbreak. There's going to be tears, I tell you, that night or the next morning, both tears of joy and tears of sorrow. As some people find out things went the way they wanted them to for their person or maybe them if they're running, and for the other folks, tears of sorrow as they realize that it didn't go the way they had hoped. That's the first thing that's going to happen. The second thing that's going to happen is going to be about two and a half weeks later. Two and a half weeks later, almost everybody in this country, overwhelming majority of the people in this country, are going to gather together, probably with family, with loved ones, with not-so-loved ones, with the people that they know, and sit down to dinner together to hopefully give thanks to God for the abundance that He has provided us. You know, most of us aren't farmers, so, you know, we don't really think too much about, oh, the harvest was great in the aspect of the real harvest, but we should be sitting down thanking God that we have so much. I mean, uh, that is the one time a year where it's almost basically you, you get the excuse from gluttony, okay? Because you're thanking God and you're, it is all about praising God for the abundance that we have. Unfortunately, those two events in a lot of places are going to overlap. And it's going to be awkward in some cases. Now in my family, that's not really a big deal. Uh, I don't really know anybody in my actual blood relative's family who are going to be arguing about the outcome. We will all either be happy or we will all either be sad because we're all pretty much on the same page that way. But there are places where that ain't the case, where some people are going to be touting and bragging and some people are going to be expressing anger and there's going to be people sitting at the same table who have these different feelings and if there's not a lot of maturity, some people could be like a third grader and rub other people's noses in it. Or they could be like a third grader and not be able to take the other person being happy about it and get up and storm out. And it's going to be awkward. You know who it's going to be the most awkward for? The people in the middle. The people who really aren't either excited one way or upset the other way. And they're just sitting there going... 
So, could somebody pass the potatoes, please? And how about those Colts this year, huh? Aren't they, you know, hey, they got more wins than losses. Uh, it's going to be an awkward dinner. I don't want you to raise your hands, but maybe just give a little nod or a look to me. Have you been at one of those dinners where it's real awkward? Oh, hardly anybody. Okay, good. That's a good thing. But those dinners are coming. And if people aren't willing to put little things aside, then it's going to be uncomfortable. What if, however, it were something far more important than just who won the local election? What if, say, we'll say a sister-in-law, because we don't want to make the bad person, you know, an actual blood relative of ours. What if somebody at the table is espousing really bad doctrinal beliefs? Or you overheard them at the meal or before the meal trying to persuade poor, vulnerable, and confused young cousin Susie into a cult, Buddhism, whatever. Well, you might say that it can wait until after dinner. And you could pull little Susie aside and have a nice heart-to-heart and try to speak truth to her. But what if you can't? What if, say, you know that immediately after the meal, in fact, she's not even going to be there for, for the most of the time that most of the people are because she's catching a ride to head back to the other side of the country to go back to her college. And she's been having this bad, false teaching put in her ear. Jesus was well-mannered. I think you probably realize that from reading the Bible and the fact that he's God. You could almost say that he was well-mannered to a fault, but you can't because he's not. He was cordial. He was polite. Even amongst people who bore him ill will, but only to a point. At a certain point, stage in the game. You could say the perfect moment in the game. He would stop being polite. And he would be blunt. Why? Why would Jesus do this? Why would Jesus, at a certain point in conversations, choose to become virtually rude to people over certain things? The reason is because people's souls were at stake. And it was important. Sometimes, even for lesser reasons, like people were physically suffering, and he was willing to go against the grain and make people upset because people were physically suffering in his presence. I want to take a, have us take a look at just such a situation that Jesus was in and see exactly how he handled it and why he handled it in that way. Jesus got invited this day, as he frequently did, to go to a dinner at somebody's house. And if you've ever seen the clickbait headlines online that try to get you to go, you won't believe what happens next. In fact, it's so incredible that we're going to take a look at part of it today, and we're going to look at part of it next week. 
Turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 14. We're going to start in verse 1. Jesus gets invited to this dinner. And oh boy, does it become awkward. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before them, before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him, meaning the man with dropsy, and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come to you and say, give up your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. There's a lot that's peculiar about this passage right from the word go. It's, there's just some odd things that are in there. It says that one Sabbath, he went over for dinner at a particularly important Pharisee's house. Now this wasn't super early in Jesus' ministry when everybody was still just really curious about his teaching. Even the Pharisees and the different scribes, they were coming out and they were asking him questions and they genuinely wanted to know what he was teaching. But it wasn't particularly late in his ministry either, you know, when they hated him with the fire of a thousand burning suns. It was somewhere in the middle where they had kind of gotten tired of his rhetoric. They had kind of gotten tired of him uh, under, undermining their authority, but they weren't really at a point yet where they were just blatantly outright, visibly out to get him. So they invite him over for dinner, and he goes. He goes to the house of this very important Pharisee. He's polite. He accepts the invitation, even though he knows they don't really like him. Why would he do that? Let me ask you something. If somebody that you knew didn't like you, you know for a fact that they don't like you. There's not a question here. It's not, you know, I'm kind of getting the feeling that so-and-so doesn't really like me that much. It's, you're really clear. They don't like you. And they're like, hey, how'd you like to come over to my house for dinner? I'd be thinking, what are they going to put in the food? I don't think I'd go. But Jesus goes to their home for a meal when he's invited. Why would he do that? 
He did it for the same reason that he went to the houses of the tax collectors when they invited him over. Because they were sinful people who needed to be brought to repentance. They were people who were living lives contrary to what God wanted, and they needed to be brought to repentance. And you don't bring somebody to repentance by ignoring them. You don't bring somebody to repentance by pretending everything's fine and they're just over there doing their own thing and I'm just going to be over here doing my own thing. He went because he was invited and they needed to hear God's word as it was intended to be said. The part that really has me stymied in this, however, is that this was all taking place on the Sabbath. They were inviting people to their place on the Sabbath for a big meal. Now, I know they had the habit back then of prepping the stuff before sundown the day before so that it was ready to go, but if you're having a big meal, anybody here who's invited a bunch of folks over for a big meal, it doesn't matter if you cook the food before. There's a lot of work that goes into that. Work, Sabbath, Pharisees. Get where I'm going with this? Why would they do that? Why would they invite him over? Maybe they're not working, but they're making a servant work. And the law that is written in Exodus chapter 20, let me see, I think it's verses 7 through 12. We went over it today in Sunday school. says that it's explicitly there because people need a day to rest. So maybe that Pharisee is going, well, I'm not working because I'm a Pharisee. But they're making somebody else do work on that Sabbath. Here they were, and they're all watching to see what he would say or do. Because there's a guy with dropsy in their presence. Now, in case you didn't grow up in or before the 1920s, that's an older name for an illness in which watery fluids build up in a body cavity or in tissues. People will sometimes have extremely swollen legs or extremely swollen other uh, uh, body parts, and it can be fatal depending on where it occurs, or it can just be extremely uncomfortable. Jesus sees this poor soul. He's obviously right there in front of everybody, they can all see that there's this suffering individual there. But before he heals the man, he asks their opinion on the matter. He doesn't just go over and do the healing. He says to them, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? In fact, it says he responds to them. Now, they didn't outwardly make a question, but it was pretty obvious they were making a question. Because they're like, hey, Jesus, come on over here. There's this guy we want you to meet. Oh, yeah, he's all, you know, crippled up with dropsy. says he replied to them because they were doing this on purpose. He says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And their answer is, of course, the cowardly answer. They say nothing. They won't answer because his question is for them as big a trap as they're putting Jesus in this situation was. 
is. This is like when he asked if John's teaching was from man or from God. If they say, yes, it's lawful. He says, can you heal? They say, yes, it's lawful. Then they can't hold it against him. But if they say it's not lawful, well, then it would be very clear to everyone around them because these meals, I've, I've talked about this before, I don't know if you remember, but when important people would have meals, there were certain people invited to the meal, but then there were a lot of people that weren't invited to the meal that would come in and basically just watch the conversation. It was like their version of going to the movies. And if they said, no, you can't heal him on the Sabbath, then they're going to appear to all these people that are standing there watching to be cruel and heartless, which, of course, they actually were. So they say nothing. He asks them. They refuse to answer. Now, in their own kind of list of rules, the teachings of the rabbis, it was written that only life-threatening issues could be treated on the Sabbath. However, they were talking about for a doctor, you know, whose job it is, who goes there and physically does stuff. Jesus is God. All he's got to do is, well, I suppose, just think it, and it would be done. There was no prohibition in the law of Moses against this. We went over this in Sunday school. All it says is honor the Sabbath and don't work. Well, what's work? Scripture never forbade that there be a healing done on the Sabbath. And being as Jesus is setting out his purpose is, is, to, is to correct their legalistic approach to matters, then it is very clear to me that their thinking isn't correct. The way they've set up these rules, it isn't in line with what God wants because Jesus is there correcting them. God never wished for the Sabbath to be something that made people suffer. It was there to be something that kept people from suffering. After their refusal to condemn the action, Jesus could have just done the healing and gone back to dining. In fact, we know from other places, Jesus doesn't have to be there. He doesn't have to say a word. He can just decide that someone is going to be healed, and they are. He healed at a distance on a couple of occasions. All he had to do was just sit back and make it happen. And then enjoy his dinner. I mean, he's got a rich guy providing him probably with the best foods available. He could have just enjoyed himself. But he didn't. He pointed out their wrong thinking. He pointed out to them how hypocritical and incorrect their entire concept of the Sabbath was. He says to them after doing the healing in verse 5, which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull it out? By saying this, he condemns them as hypocrites. He also condemns their rules because the teachings of the rabbis, their official go-to for what is allowed and what isn't allowed, makes It makes very specific provisions for this. It says in there, if your ox or your, your, you know, something falls into a a crevice or a well or whatnot, you can pull it out 
on the Sabbath. But it doesn't make provision for healing somebody unless they're going to die. In a similar incident in Matthew, when Jesus heals a man in a synagogue on the Sabbath, he uses the same reasoning, but he says a sheep instead of an ox. There, they had put the man right in front of them, and they asked him the question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And after he makes the animal reference to them, he says, you'd pull your sheep out of a a, a pit if it fell into one. It says in Matthew 12, 12, of how much more value is a man than a sheep. So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Part of what he's doing in that instance is pointing out that their values were on monetary property. Something that cost a little coin. Boy, if my sheep dies... That's going to hit me in the wallet. I I need to be able to do that. If a cow or a sheep is flipped on its back for any good length of time, it will die. And he's pointing out that their provisions are more in line with what's good for their wallet than what's good for people. Now, In what would seem like a separate issue, Jesus takes notice of their behavior concerning seating arrangements. He had come in, and it doesn't say anything about where he sat or uh, whether the host put him at the head of the table or the foot of the table or anything like that. But he sits back and he notices that they're jockeying for position because they all want to be in the most important place. And so he sits back and he notices this. And he comments on that as well. Imagine this at your dinner party. Somebody sits back and says, you know, you all have some mental issues going on here with how you're doing this. He tells them they shouldn't be jockeying for the place of highest honor because unless they happen to be the person most honored by the host, then they would end up getting pushed out of that seat and humiliated in front of all these people whom they're so bent on impressing by being the most important in in the best seating place. I I once saw a wedding, well, it was the dinner after the wedding, where somebody just wasn't paying really good attention to things, or they didn't understand how wedding seating usually went. You know, you've usually got all the regular tables, and then up at the front you've got the head table where... The wedding party sits. And some joker just walked in and whether it was oblivious or I don't know what it was, he went and he sat down up at the head table for the wedding party. And people are kind of looking at him like, what is going on with this guy? And somebody literally had to go up to him and say, buddy, this ain't for you. Can you imagine that happening in front of a couple of hundred people that you know? How embarrassed you'd be at being told, hey, you're not important enough to sit here. And Jesus is saying, that's going to happen. And oh, by the way, chances are all the other seats will be taken except for the worst one. And that's where you're going to end up. If they take his advice only literally and only on surface value, then they will be demonstrating a Machiavellian level of false humility 
with the real goal of getting even more honor and attention. But what he's really telling them to do is to have a little bit of genuine self-reflection and perhaps come to the realization that you really aren't all that important as maybe you think that you are. By being willing to lower oneself to the only possibility that you be lifted up. Or I suppose you could be left seating where you are if the host was like, yeah, they're pretty much where I expected them to be. Then you're demonstrating that you don't think all that overly highly of yourself. However, as usual, Jesus isn't merely speaking about the surface topic that's at hand. He's making a whole life comment. Physical, mental, spiritual. He's trying to get them to realize, albeit a bit abruptly in the way he does it with them, that they are spiritually sick people. And it's evident by their selfish, prideful actions. I'm pretty sure that there were some people at the table sitting there with their mouths hanging open thinking, who is this guy who he thinks he can talk to us like this? Who invited him? Why does he talk to me like this? I'm more important than that. I should not be spoken to in this manner. The answer is that he's the guy who actually wants them to come to repentance. And sometimes, sometimes, for us sinful human beings, and I'm talking about me, and I'm talking about you, we need a little bit of a slap in the face to get our attention. In the first instance, he's making it clear that their hearts aren't affected by the actual human suffering that's going on right in front of their eyes. This guy is suffering, and they know that Jesus can fix the situation, and they don't care. He has a debilitating illness, something that I I, I just can't imagine having happen. And their response is to use the guy as a trap for Jesus. Now, I I want you to think about this for a second. I want you to think about some other folks who put a disabled person in front of Jesus, but they didn't do it to trap him. They didn't do it to test him. They didn't do it to try to make life hard for him. They dug a hole through the roof and lowered their friend down in front of Jesus and they didn't care about the the social implications. They loved their friend. And they wanted to see their friend healed, so they lowered him down in front of Jesus, hoping and praying that Jesus would heal him because they had true love in their hearts. And these people, I don't know, You know, it's all in my imagination that maybe they went out and tried to find somebody. They're like, okay, head out into the streets and find somebody who's obviously got problems and we'll stick him right in front of Jesus. 
I don't know how that happened, but that's how I imagine it. Where must your mind be if you're that uncaring that you're using people in that manner? They put him there not for the benefit of the sick person, but for their own agenda. So that they can accuse Jesus. And these were the people who made a show of how pious they were. They loved God's people so much. Beware the person who says he wants to help you only when it makes them look good. I debated whether I was going to say this or not. I'm going to. Maybe it's the wrong decision. I don't know if you guys watch a lot of things on the internet. I've seen these videos. They just pop up in my YouTube feed where these people with YouTube channels with 10 million viewers, they go out and they're handing cash or good things to homeless people. Is that a good thing to do? Well, in some cases I'd say no. Because depending on the person, if you hand them a lot of cash, you might be handing them a death sentence. But let's, let's put the cash aside. Let's say they're bringing them out a really nice meal to this homeless person. Is that a good thing to do? Everybody say, yes. Yes, it's a good thing to do to, to feed a homeless person. But couldn't you do it without broadcasting it to 15 million people on your YouTube channel? What's your real intention there? That's what these Pharisees are like. I've lost my place. And upstairs, they're probably going, I have no idea where he is. The way Jesus points out their hypocrisy is through their money bags. He says that if it was going to cost them money to replace an ox or a sheep, they wouldn't hesitate to break every rule in the book that they made up to force on other people. But to relieve a suffering person, they won't do anything. In the second instance, he points out that their pride, their arrogance, and ridiculous opinion of their own self-importance was once again having them be willing to put other people down, if it will, in their minds make them look better. They're proud. They're rude. Merciless. Jealous. Selfish. Greedy. Legalistic. And mean. And Jesus loved them enough to tell them so. He could have done the healing without them even knowing it. He could have sat there and enjoyed his wonderful meal from his rich host and said or done nothing. What would that have cost Jesus? Nothing. He wouldn't have stirred the pot. He wouldn't have made that awkward dinner. He would have just enjoyed a meal. The guy would have been healed. Both of them walk away without an issue. What good would that have done for the sinful people in his midst? 
None. We wouldn't have done a thing for them. What would it have done for the other people who were present but weren't the target of his comments, the the onlookers standing around the edges of the room? It would have done them no good. Jesus saw people for who they were and he met them right there. He went to the homes of tax collectors. He ate with prostitutes. And he confronted their sins. He went to the homes of people who thought they were all that and a sack lunch. And he confronted their sins. Why? Because he knows us. And he knows that you and I, members of the human race, we are self-deceptive. With some who are aware of their own sins, conscious of their sinful lives, but who lacked the strength or the courage to refrain, he showed more gentleness, yes. But he still confronted their sin. But with all, he wasn't afraid to risk making it an awkward dinner and having them angry at him in order to call them to repentance. He didn't go to this dinner and, and just before he went in, say to the, the, uh, the apostles, hey, hey, watch, stand on the outside edge, watch, I'm going to rip these guys. I'm going to tear them to shreds. He went in there and he pointed out sin so that people would see the sin in their lives and hopefully realize, oh man, I'm not as good as I think I am. And I've got some change that needs to happen in my life. And he confronted them over it. This is something our minds regularly need. Whether it's greed, hatred, jealousy, pride, lust, idolatry, adultery, gluttony, violence, you name it. We will lie to ourselves and say that it's okay. And Jesus is saying, no, it's not okay. Because he loves us. And he wants us to change. He loved the tax collectors and the prostitutes. And while it may not seem like it, he loved the Pharisees also. And he was bringing them the truth from God. They had made their rule books piled high, high, high over what Exodus chapter 20 said were the rules. And then they made up all kinds of Little rules to get around all the other rules that they had made, and none of it, excuse me, none of it was what God intended. Why did God make the Sabbath? Because He loved us, and He wanted people to have a rest, not to come up with rules to beat people up with. Why did Jesus confront sin in His midst, even though it made people really uncomfortable and for an awkward dinner? Because He loves us. And He wants to confront the sin that is eating away at our lives like a cancer. So that we can give it over to Him, the great physician, who can 
cut it out and heal us completely. But only if we're willing, when confronted by that Word of God, when we're reading Scripture and we see that it says something and we go, I'm not good with this. Not meaning I don't like this, although that may be the case too. But I'm not good with this as in I'm not living my life according to this. And so it will change our hearts to help us change or desire to change ourselves. And when we are willing to give that to Him, He promises to take it from us. We don't have to work our way into heaven. We just have to recognize the sin and repent and attempt to change. If you're not there yet, that's where you need to be. Recognize that you too are a sinner. You hear the Word or you read the Word. You're convicted in your heart that you too are a sinner. That you need forgiveness of that sin. You repent of that sin. You confess that sin to God. And you accept the forgiveness that only Jesus can give you. And He'll meet you today in baptism where you will die the old self and raise a new creation. If you have not done that, I encourage you to do it today. Please stand as we sing. We hope you guys don't mind, but we're actually going to sing.